Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sunday edition of Manna for Breakfast. I am doing my best to get my voice back the way it needs to be. It's coming back slow. Appreciate your guys' patience as uh, as I recuperate. So we are moving into Job th- chapter 32, 33 today, and Matthew 14, the first part of 14. So if you will find your place... Father, thank you again for your love and your passion for your sheep. You were willing to lay your life down. You are still, God, ever reaching out for the lost sheep, going after them and doing whatever is necessary, God. And we are so thankful because you know that you, we, you did that for us and you do it for the people that we love. So we want to be a part of that effort, God, of you reaching the lost world. So continue to guide us and strengthen us and show us how and where you want to use us and in what capacity. So we thank you, and we just pray that you would build us up in your word today as we read through these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Job, here we go, chapter 32. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God, and his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he And Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. So Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man. And the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me. I too will tell what I think. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasoning. While you pondered what to say, I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job. Not one of you who answered his words. Do not say we have found wisdom. God will Root him, not man. For he has not arranged his words against me, nor will I reply to him with your arguments. They are dismayed. They no longer answer. Words have failed them. Shall I wait? Because they do not speak? Because they stop and no longer answer? I too will answer my share. I also will tell my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine. 
like new wineskin that is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Chapter 33. However, now, Job, please hear my speech and listen to my words. Behold, now I will open my mouth. My tongue in my mouth speaks. My words are from the uprightness of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourself against me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I, too, have been formed out of the clay. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should any pressure weigh heavily on you. Surely you have spoken in my hearing. I have heard the sound of your words. I am pure without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no guilt in me. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than men. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber, in their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his soul favored food. His flesh wastes away from sight, and his bones, which were not seen, stick out. Then his soul draws near to the pit, and his life to those who bring death. If there is an angel as mediator for him, one out of a thousand to remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him, and say, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then he will pray to God, and he will accept him, that he may see his face with joy, and he may restore his righteousness to man. He will sing to men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right, and it is not proper for me. Verse 28. Then he redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see the light. Behold, God does all these oftentimes with men, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Keep silent and let me speak. Then, if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. So anyway, he's going to continue on as we will look into tomorrow. But this is really interesting. 
here's this young guy that really wants to speak up. Elihu, he's, he's got, he doesn't like that these guys have, can't really, really convict Job of unrighteousness. Every time they do, Job says, well, here's my list. Here's my pedigree. Everything I've done in my life, show me where I've gone wrong, and they can't do it. And this guy says, well, I really shouldn't speak because I'm young, but I'm like young wine. That's about ready to explode. <laughs> when you think, stop and think about it, that means that there's gas being <laughs> outgassing going on. He's full of hot air. He's, <laughs> he's, that's my opinion. He wants, he's ready to explode. He has to speak so bad, and that's pretty arrogant. He wants to speak and give the young guy's opinion of what's going on in Job's life. Now, he is right in that God, when he speaks, he can speak once or twice, and that we we aren't in any position to question God. So he's right about that, and, and that he does often speak to men in their dreams. And so he's basically saying, look, you don't have a position to complain, and there is some merit in that, in what he's saying. But the thing that Job is doing seemingly more than anything is just trying to defend himself most of the time against the accusations that he's suffering these things because of his evilness or his, you know, his, his sin that is in his life. And Elihu and Bill has and all these guys want to try and find the reason, find his sin. And he's saying, look, not going to find it. I don't know why God's doing this, but you're not going to find it me. You're not going to find the unrighteousness there. And so the, therein lies the whole dilemma of Job. Why does God do things? And is it God doing these things? Are we caught up in a spiritual warfare going on in the heavenlies when we are involved in things that we do not understand and we're trying to do and live our lives the best, but everything goes haywire and goes wrong? Is God trying to use us like Job? Or is the enemy just coming in and attacking us? Or are we falling out of fellowship with God? Are we going off track? Is it an indication that we're not our walk is not right with him? Because it can be. It can be an indication. God can allow us to wander away out of his protection and we can get harmed. So it's those areas that we seek the answers for. And it is by the Holy Spirit, and every answer can be different. This is why we don't get a direct answer in Job. It's left open-ended because every person can have a different type of Job experience. And we need to be sensitive to it to see what God is trying to speak to us and say to us. So let's go on and look at Matthew chapter 14 now. First 21 verses, anyway. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And this is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to them, It is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod Wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before him and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oath, because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. 
And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Verse 13. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion from them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. We normally kind of separate the story of John the Baptist and the feeding of the 5,000. And it might be justified completely. But reading through that, I'm impressed by the heart and the compassion of Jesus when he hears that his cousin, his good friend John, has now been murdered to please some dinner guests for the pride of a man and the arrogance of a man that the greatest of all men that had ever lived on the earth, according to Jesus, was at the mercy of this one king and a dancing girl the injustice of of it all. He was the one person that was speaking truth. Boldly enough that he spoke it directly to the king, that they would know that what they were doing was sinful. Now, the only reason John would do that was certainly out of obedience, but you have to wonder if because he was the bridge between the old and the new, and that the coming of the Messiah was for the benefit of all the kingdoms of the world, that this wasn't God himself moving John to bring the opportunity or the gift of salvation to the house of Herod through grace. If they would recognize that their acts are sinful, then they could be set free. And that John was the one that was doing what? Preparing the way for the Messiah. So now his ministry is done. Obviously, God knew what was going to happen. So Jesus is obviously sad, and he goes off by himself to mourn. He, we, have a, we have a Savior that is concerned and mourns and hurts when people are hurt and are killed. He has a heart of compassion, the greatest heart of compassion. But now he knows that now the transition is complete from the old to the new. The way of salvation now depends completely upon him. John has prepared the way. And when he now goes to this place and he sees these people, he has compassion. He realized this, well, he already knew this, but this is where it impacts him through his emotions because he's feeling this deep sorrow for John and everything. He realized the gravity of what's going on. God has brought him for this purpose. And now John is taken out of the way. He's gone to heaven. And he realizes now, here are the sheep. They're without a shepherd. They need healing. They need food. They need help. 
And so he feels this deep compassion out of the relationship that he had and the loss that he had for John. And he starts doing the miracles of the Messiah that were prophesied. Again, more of the miracles and feeds them and heals them and gives so much compassion and love for them. And what I see in this is that our losses and our pains and our separation from people we love when we're going through difficult times can actually be used of God to give us greater hearts of compassion and to help us to be ministering more and more. In other words, rather than withdrawing and staying withdrawn and mourning and saying, don't, I don't want to talk to anybody, leave me alone. And we all need those times of mourning. Don't get me wrong. We need those times alone. Jesus took that time alone. But he knew when the time was over, it was time to move and to start pouring out grace and compassion and mercy and healing the people around him. He did not stay down in that state. He used the state of the sense of loss for his good friend, his cousin, his family. He used that for the glorifying of God and the kingdom of God. What a beautiful thing that, he, that we see here. And it was, for, of course, for the people to know that he was the author of life. He was the source, and they could draw unto him, and they would receive all of their needs, not only physical but spiritual. It's a beautiful story and one that we should never grow tired of, of how God he sent his son to redeem us and how John was the way that prepared the way for all mankind for the coming of our Messiah. Okay, now jumping over to Charles Spurgeon. I think if I got enough time, I'll squeak it in here. Okay, Exodus 7, 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The ungodly world is hard to teach. Egypt does not know Jehovah and therefore dares to set up its idols and even ventures to ask, who is the Lord? Yet the Lord means to break proud hearts. Whether they will or not, when his judgment thunders over their heads, darken their skies, destroy their harvests, and slay their sons, they begin to discern somewhat of Jehovah's power. There will be such things done in the earth as shall bring skeptics to their knees. Let us not be dismayed because of their blasphemies. The Lord can take care of his own name, and he will do so in a very effectual manner. The salvation of his own people was another potent means of making Egypt know that their God of Israel was Jehovah, the living and true God. No Israelite died by any one of the ten plagues. None of the chosen seed were drowned in the Red Sea. Even so, the salvation of all true believers will make the most obstinate of God's enemies acknowledge that Jehovah, he is the God. Oh, that this convincing power would go forth by the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the gospel to the nations, bow at the name of Jesus and call him Lord. And Father, that is our prayer this morning. It is so needed in the pulpits and in preaching that we get away from this new, unfortunate bending to the culture and minimizing the word of God 
and trying to legitimize lifestyles of sin and minimize the need for repentance and calling upon the Lord and asking for forgiveness. Father, pray that you move this day in churches, move among your people and move in the pulpits and cause these men that you've called to preach your word, to do it in boldness. I thank you for the churches we're associated with, the many Calvary chapels that have really, really strong pastors and uh, mentors in many ways to myself and so many people. So we thank you for using them and continue to use us, God, here in Mexico so that we can stand up and proclaim your word, but do it in a sense where we can pour out that heart of compassion like Jesus. We can see the people as lost sheep. We can bring them to your fountain, God. We can bring them to you, the good shepherd, and ask you, Father, that you would feed them, guide them, shelter them, and most of all, save them, redeem them, help them to bow their knee and see that you are Lord and Savior. So we pray for a harvest of souls. Pray, Father, that you move in our church, move in our city, God. There's so much evil in Puerto Vallarta. We pray that your spirit, God, would go out here and bring people in and that you would be the one that draw them and that your word be that which convicts them and transforms them and brings them into new life. So we thank you for this beautiful and glorious day you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen.